As you may know, we're in the middle of a sermon series during Lent called Letting Go and Let God. What are the things that are holding us back from being the people who God has called us to be? And what would it mean for us to let go of things like worry and grudges? Today, we look at what would it mean to let go of fear? And what would it mean then to let God help us with all of that? Tucked away in the end of the New Testament are three little letters by the Apostle John. And our scripture for today comes from 1 John chapter 4, which is a well-known passage, but I'm reading today from the translation by Eugene Peterson in the message. Listen for what God has to say to us about letting go of fear and letting God give us faith. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house, becomes at home and mature in us so that we're free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ's. There is no room in love for fear. Well-formed love banishes fear. Since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love, love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we pray that these words would hit every one of us at our point of need. Would you, O oh God, put these words into the fears that we have, no matter what those fears may be, and although those fears may be shrouded in darkness, would you today please, O oh God, illumine your love and light for us so that we might take the next step on our journey of faith with you. All this we pray asking you to pour through me the gift of preaching. And we know you will, for we pray with anticipation in the strong name of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Amen. Tell me honestly, what are you afraid of? You know, when sociologists and psychologists tell us all the leading fears of Americans, they always list things like claustrophobia or heights or flying on an airplane or public speaking. Yikes, I should be scared to death right now. But actually, that's another fear, death. In fact, death may be the number one fear of lots of people. We're afraid of death. It represents the unknown. We're also afraid of the dark and spiders and snakes. We also have psychological fears like fear of abandonment and like a fear of running out of time. Patrick McGinnis, a venture capitalist and an author wrote in the Harvard Business School Review some years ago about a psychological fear that he called FOMO, F-O-M-O, -O, fear of missing out. 
And for many years, he thought that FOMO was something that junior high kids and high school kids and college kids and young adults had. That's why they spent so much time on their phones, kind of looking up something, because they were afraid they'd miss out on a fun experience or, or some time that they would have with somebody else. And they didn't want to miss it. They were fear of missing out. But recently, Patrick McGinnis has formed a podcast called FOMO Sapiens. I love that name. And the FOMO Sapiens realizes that people in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and even into their 80s have FOMO. They're afraid of missing out. What are you afraid of? Some years ago, my wife Suzanne and I and our two sons, Ryan and Toby, visited Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. Mammoth Cave is aptly named. It is enormous. It is mammoth. You go down under the ground and there's 50,000 acres of ground, underground, which actually leads into over 400 miles of underground tunnels. It is enormous. And we took this tour and saw stalactites and stalagmites and it's beautiful down there. But then our guy took us to a rotunda. And in this enormous rotunda, he said, now folks, I've enjoyed having you on the tour, but we're almost ready to leave. But I wanna do a little experiment with you folks. When I count to one, I want you to close your eyes. When I count to two, I'm going to turn off the lights. And then when I count to three, I'm going to want you to open your eyes. So he said one, and we all said one, and then we closed our eyes. He said two, and we all yelled out two, and he turned out the lights. And then he said three, and we all yelled out three, and we opened our eyes. And I tell you the truth. It was the darkest dark I have ever experienced in my life. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I couldn't see Suzanne or our sons who were standing right next to me. And there was a lot of nervous laughter down there because we were afraid in the dark. Then our guide said, now folks, before we leave, we were in the darkness now, I want to tell you a few more things about Mammoth Cave while we're standing in the dark. He said, you know, Mammoth Cave was discovered in the 19th century, but it wasn't until 1941 that people felt it was safe enough to bring visitors. So that year we had about 50,000 visitors. But then after that, we had 500,000 visitors. So we estimate we've had somewhere over 50 million visitors in Mammoth Cave. And then he said, who made it out alive? You know, some people never made it out alive from Mammoth Cave. We actually don't know how many might have been. Some might have drowned in a river that comes through here. Some might have been bitten by a wild animal. You know, there were wild animals down here. And I'm thinking to myself, why is he bringing this up now? You know, he doesn't have to mention this. He can just keep this to himself. And then I'm thinking, you know, I hate Kentucky. I hate caves. I hate this guide. I'm thinking, I got to get out of here. But then the guide said, now there's one more thing I'd like to do here. And I'm thinking, what is that? but it changed everything. He lit a match. And when he did it, everything changed. Our fear and anxiety were diminished. And as soon as he did that, he lit the match to a candle, put the candle in a little glass goblet, and he led all of us out of Mammoth Cave one step at a time, following that guide out of the darkness into the light. Notice. Our guide did not say that he was going to eliminate the darkness. It was still dark. He illuminated the darkness. The guide we meet in this text for today is a spiritual guide named John, John the Apostle. And John actually was teaching people who were living in the dark. 
They were in the dark about death and they were in the dark about judgment day. They were the early Christians and they were actually scared of death and scared of judgment day. And what John did would light a candle that helped everything and helped them to see what death and what judgment day were all about. The people in the early church thought that Jesus was coming right back after the death and the resurrection and the ascension. So they thought he's coming back any day and they were waiting and waiting and waiting for him to come back. Well, then when he didn't come back, they realized they were going to have to physically die. They thought for a long time like they, he was going to come back in the second coming and take them on clouds into heaven. And that was their belief system. But then as he doesn't come back for a year and two years and three years and a generation goes by and another generation starts, they realized they're going to have to die and they were afraid of death. But it was like the apostle John lit this match. And all of a sudden, they could see. And what John was saying in his writing is, you don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of judgment day. Actually, judgment day is going to be a good thing because God is for us. When God sees you and you stand before God on judgment day, instead of seeing you, God will see Jesus Christ and your sins will be forgiven and there's nothing to fear. And it's like, he lit that match. And all of a sudden, all the fear of the people in the early church was dissipated because our spiritual guide was not eliminating the darkness. There was still death. There was still going to be judgment day. But he illuminated the darkness. Sometimes the best way to understand our faith is to sing it. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to sing anything right now. But I do want to have you remember some words of a favorite Christmas carol. And this Christmas carol, I think, sums up what John the Apostle is trying to say to the early church and to us today. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. See, John is saying, you don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of judgment day. He lit this this lamp, and all of a sudden, they realized death is not an ending. It's simply a comma to really more of life in the kingdom of God. And then John said one other thing to these people in the early church that was about heaven, but they always thought heaven began somewhere else out there somewhere. And what John is suggesting is that heaven is not a place. It's a relationship. And actually, heaven starts right now. And as they love one another, as they're enveloped in the love of God, they actually experience not only a taste of heaven, they experience heaven. And this was good news for the early church. So he said, when you love someone, you're actually experiencing heaven right here on earth. And this was very important in the early church because maybe you know in the secular society in Rome in that day in the early church, the secular world, the Roman world would say, see how these Christians love one another. The Christians were known as taking care of the widows and the orphans and people in need. And they had a wonderful testimony. In fact, the reason so many people flocked to the church was because they wanted to be enveloped in that kind of love. Now, wait do you hear this. The problem was... In the early church, although they loved one another and it was wonderful, there was starting to creep into the church some divisions and some schism. 
a philosophy called Gnosticism crept its way into the early church around the end of the first century, and many Christians were seduced by it. And many Christians were saying, well, Gnosticism, it sounds good. It said spirit is good, matter is evil. So God who is spirit can't touch matter, which is evil. And in some ways that made sense to the early Christians. But then when they thought about it, they realized Gnosticism was denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because if God is spirit and God can't touch matter, then God can't be flesh. So Jesus wasn't really human and a heresy emerged called docetism. And docetism from the Greek word dokine, meaning to seem. So well, Jesus just seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. And they actually believed he didn't leave a footprint on the earth. And this divided the body of Christ. There was schism in the body of Christ. And then the philosophy emerged, well, if matter is bad and, and spirit is good, then the key is getting the spirit out of the body and separating body and spirit and all of a sudden, the people said, you know, Gnosticism maybe isn't all it's cracked up to be. And it was dividing the church. And people thought, if I could only get free of this body and have the spirit reign, then it would be okay. And some people said, well, if you have certain types of knowledge, Gnosticism, knowledge, you would be able to be free, the spirit, from the body. Well, then certain people say, well, I'm superior to you because I can free my spirit from my body. And all of a sudden in the early church, division came. And people would say, I hate that person in the church. And John lights a match and says, now, wait a minute. If you're hating someone, there's no room for hate in the church. There's no room for hate in the human race. If you've been enveloped in the love of God, you don't hate anybody. You've got to love people, even if you disagree with them. You love them even if you don't look like them. And the early church had lots of diversity. Oh, my friends, are these words from John just for the early Christians, or are they for us today as well? Could it be that God's heart is broken by the fact that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour of the week. African Americans all worship together. Asian Americans worship together. Caucasians worship together. Hispanics worship together. And so often people worship with like-minded and like-looking people. And I believe it breaks the heart of God. And isn't it a tragedy in our world today that now so many racial ethnic groups feel they're targeted as Asian Americans did this past week. And they feel that people actually hate them. And what John's shining the light to say, now wait a minute, there's no room for hate in love. If you've been enveloped by the love of God, you can't hate anybody. Your witness for God is only as good as your love. I wish the Church of Jesus Christ could be like Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a certain diversity in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been to many Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Our church that I pastored for years in New York City had an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that met every day, Monday through Friday, all through the year, 52 weeks a year. It was wonderful. 
And what I saw in that group were Indian people and Pakistani people and African-American people and Asian people and Caucasian people and young and old and men and women and gay and straight and all these different types of people. And homeless people were sitting next to some of the wealthiest people in the city, investment bankers and attorneys. And entertainers came to that group and Broadway actors and actresses and people who sang at the Metropolitan Opera and entertainers who were household words and athletes in New York that everybody knew their name. And they were sitting next to each other, and yet what was interesting is nobody ever asked one of these household names for their autograph, because there was nobody who was a big deal and somebody who was a little deal. Everybody came because they all had a need to stay sober one day at a time, and they needed the group to do that, and they needed the help of a higher power. So I made it a practice to go every now and then to that AA group, and I went in and I welcomed them and thanked them for coming and said they were welcome here. And I said, you know, I know the 12 steps and 12 traditions. I've read the, the big book. And, and if you want to take care of one of the steps in our sanctuary, it's a great place to be quiet. And our organist sometimes is playing hymns and maybe you enjoy the music. But just feel free to come in for a half hour or an hour and be still and just meditate or do your step. And if you want to talk to me or one of the pastors, we're available to you, but welcome. We're so happy you came. And then I would always mention something coming up like a service, like Christmas Eve service, and I urged them to come. There was no pressure, but he said, we want you to know you're welcome. Well, that particular Christmas Eve, Jim came to Fifth Avenue's 11 o'clock service. I was so glad he came. He'd had a little over a month of sobriety, and I, I really came to enjoy Jim. I got to know him through the AA group, and he did one of the steps with me, and we got to know one another a little bit, and I knew that he wanted his wife and daughters to spend Christmas with him, but, but alas, his wife took the daughters the day before Christmas Eve to her parents for Christmas without Jim. I was hoping and praying Jim would come to the Christmas Eve service. So imagine my delight when about 30 minutes before church, I'm about ready to go out and make announcements, and I open the door and peek through it and look out into the sanctuary. The place was packed with just hundreds and hundreds of people packed in. But there was Jim in the fourth row, and I thought, oh, thank God. Well, then Jim got up from his place and walked over to the door. I backed away, and Jim came. He was moving pretty fast, and he came through that door and he passes me by, doesn't speak to me, and he starts walking out the door of the church. I said, Jim, where are you going? And he said, I'm going for a scotch, if you have to know. I said, I said Jim, you told me you'd only had a little over a month of sobriety. You can't do that. He said, are you going to stop me? I said, well, I can't stop you. I mean, you can do what you want to do, but, but I just beg you, Jim, to come back a minute. I've got to go in and make an announcement here, and, and then I've got 30 minutes. I'd love to talk with you before the 11 o'clock service. They're going to play great music. We can be listening to it and talk a little bit. And, and then if you want to go for a scotch, you can do it. But I'd just, I just love to talk to you for a minute. Please just come in, won't you? And, and Jim turned around and came back, and he and I sat in the vestry. The associate pastors came down. I said to them, I'll be right back. I just have to make a quick announcement to welcome everybody. And I walked out into the sanctuary to welcome people, and there were people all over that big church. And you've heard me say at San Marino before that I pray with open hands so God can take some things out of my hands and put some things into my hands. And I never prayed so hard in my life, and I, I really opened my hands, literally, and I just put them at my side so people wouldn't see me, but I was praying, God, give me a creative idea. I'm open. I'm available. I need a creative idea, God, to help Jim. I didn't know what to do. I made my announcements. I thanked them for coming, and then 
I was waiting for God to give me a creative idea. And I just remembered that Bill Wilson was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I found myself saying, and friends, I've got one more announcement. And if you don't understand this, don't worry about it. But, but if you understand this, I could really use your help. If you are a friend of Bill Wilson, if you are a friend of Bill W., when I finish the announcements, would you come out here to this door on my left to the vestry and go through that door? I could really use your help. Well, thanks so much for coming. Merry Christmas. Enjoy the music. We'll be back in a little while for Oh Come All Ye Faithful and Silent Night. It's going to be a great service. Merry Christmas. And I walked over by that door and all over that sanctuary, Caucasian people, African-American people, young people, old people, Asian people, Pakistani people, men and women, all ages, shapes and sizes, started to come out to the door to the vestry. And there in the vestry, while we were singing and I was preaching about the word becoming flesh, there in the vestry, the word of God really was becoming flesh. And Jim was experiencing the love of God which enveloped him. I'll never forget getting up to preach that night and looking in the very back and the last several rows were all filled with these AA people. They were out surrounding Jim and they were talking to one another and they were obviously having a good time together. And as I started to preach, I, I realized that they were all listening to me. And at the end of the service, I greeted Jim and the other people and, and I said to Jim, I said, Jim, I'm so happy you stayed for the service tonight. He said, Tom, this is the greatest Christmas Eve of my whole life. I said, why do you say that? He said, because... I walked in here tonight feeling lost and alone and afraid. But I'm leaving tonight enveloped in love. What happened to Jim? The hopes and fears of all the years were met in Jesus Christ that night. Jim realized when you're enveloped by that kind of love of AA, that kind of love where somebody invited him to spend Christmas with them and they wouldn't let him be alone till his brother came in a couple of days to spend New Year's, that kind of love that enveloped him and wouldn't let him be alone and had him for Christmas dinner and had some Christmas dinners during the week until his brother came, that kind of love enveloped Jim. When that kind of love envelops you, we have nothing to fear. When that kind of love envelops you, it changes everything. My San Marino friends, would you be willing to let go of your fears and let God take them? If so, it might just change your life. Amen.